As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. You see a letter from a Roman governor that kind of references these two enslaved women as leaders in the church. Um, And, you know, this governor is not kind toward these women. Um, But the fact that he mentions them as people who are leading, like they're the people that you want to like get to if you're going to mess up the church, right? Like, so even though they were women and they were enslaved and they did not have a lot of power, respect within the broader Roman world or culture, uh, within the church, they were respected as leaders and looked up to. Hello and welcome to Unbelievable, the show that engages in what we hope are meaningful conversations about faith, life and belief. I'm your host, Andy Kind, and today we're embarking on a new and important journey, an ongoing series where we'll dive into the topic of women in the church, women in ministry, and how women are portrayed in the Bible. Well, joining me today is Liz Coolidge Jenkins. Liz is a writer, preacher, former college campus minister based in the Seattle area, and a theological seminary alumni. She writes extensively on the intersections of faith, feminism, and social justice. Liz has also penned a book entitled Nice Churchy Patriarchy, Reclaiming Women's Humanity from Evangelicalism. In this occasional Unbelievable series, we'll be discussing differing views on women's roles within the church and biblical interpretations of women's stories. But rather than our usual debate format, we're going for a more nuanced explanation. So today we will be asking why women often don't feel equal to men in church. Liz Coolidge Jenkins, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you on the show. We want to talk about the book, but before we go into that, could you just furnish us with a bit of backstory, your background, and how you came to see the need for writing this book and how you reached the point where you thought, I I am the person to write this book? Yeah, a little bit of backstory, sure. Um, so I was raised in the Seattle area in a church where women served and led freely as pastors and elders and all the different leadership roles that people have in churches. Um, and so I never really thought twice about any of it until I moved away for college and wandered into a more conservative evangelical church. Um And it wasn't even part of my, it wasn't even on my radar that there were churches where women were not serving as elders and leaders and preachers in different ways. And um, so it took me a year or two to even realize that there were roles that women were prohibited from having in that church. And it took me a few more years to come around to the perspective that that was really not okay. I think it was not okay with me. Um, And I think 
at first it kind of felt like, well, you know, there's a lot of different ways that people read the Bible and that's okay. Like I never really fully bought into the mindset of complementarianism that women should be prohibited mm -hmm. from different roles, but I could see how other people came to that. And um, it kind of felt like something that we could agree to, dis to disagree about. Um, so it took me a few years to realize how important it really was to me to see women in those leadership roles and how, how much that impacts every aspect of church life and every aspect of a community and how women see ourselves and how men see women and all these things. So um, it became something really important to me over time. And um, the time that I spent in seminary getting a Master of Divinity degree also really reinforced um, my view of how important it is to have women in leadership and um, and all the different perspectives that I didn't really get at my conservative church um, in terms of how to see women in scripture, seeing women in church history, all these things. And so I felt like at the end of seminary, I had a lot of things I wanted to share, things that I learned that were mind-blowing to me that I wanted to be known more broadly. And um, so that's kind of how the book came about, out of that and out of realizing that I wasn't the only person who had all these frustrating experiences in conservative churches as a young woman yeah. and um, just kind of wanting to help women on that journey and help people think through these things. That's fantastic. And I'm sure, like many others, I can't wait to have my mind blown by what you're going to say over the course of this interview. Before we go any further, can you just explain for people who might not know the difference between complementarianism and egalitarianism? Can you just sort of briefly sum up the differences in those meanings? Yeah, I mean, I would say that complementarianism is a view that tries to say that men and women have equal value and worth before God and yet should have different roles, both in ministry and church leadership and also often in marriage or relationships or family life. Um, so egalitarianism is a view that there aren't any roles that women should be prohibited from, um, that people of all genders are equally called and equipped and gifted to serve and lead. And often in the home that in an opposite sex marriage, the man and the woman um, should have, you know, roles in marriage that are defined by their interests and what they're good at and like doing as opposed to their gender. And is that a view that you have come to recently, the view as laid out in the book? Is that something that you've always harbored uh, or when you were in the more conservative churches, did you agree with this complementarianism um, and the idea that actually there are differing roles and what can sometimes seem to be elevated roles for men. So how have, how have you shifted on that and what was the thing that, that caused that? Was it, was it delving into scripture? Mm, yeah, um, I don't think that I ever fully bought into a complementarian view, um, but I was, I was content to exist for a while as an egalitarian within a complementarian church. Mm -hmm. And I was not the only one. The church was deeply divided in what different people thought about gender and gender roles and scripture and all that. So, um, yeah, I would say that my study of scripture and of church history um, and of theology has strengthened my egalitarian view and how strongly I hold it um, as opposed to changing it. That's absolutely fantastic. Again, really excited to hear um, what you've got to say over the course of uh, this interview. We're obviously interested in Unbelievable in nuance and we're not interested in straw manning uh, opposing viewpoints, particularly when it's a, when it's an interview format like this. So could you steel man for us the 
the complementarian view. What is the best, in your opinion, what is the best argument for the complementarian view? Obviously, it's not something that you hold to, but how would you how would you best defend the opposing view? Yeah, that's a great question because I do feel that there are uh, a lot of different arguments that are made and a lot of different strengths of those arguments. So you might hear people say things like men are just more rational than women and therefore are better equipped to lead. Um, I, my opinion is that that is fairly clearly not true. Um, <laughs> but I think that, you know, the arguments that uh, people that I you know care about and respect find compelling are mostly from scripture. Um, and, you know, people take Genesis 2 and the creation stories um, and read a lot into the fact that Adam was created before Eve. Um, and that God gives sort of different instructions at some points to Adam and Eve, and they're sort of held responsible for the fall in different ways. People could make a lot of those things and um, can read a lot into that in terms of, of um, what that means for us today. Um, and then, you know, there's a lot of things the Apostle Paul says in the New Testament that taken at face value are pretty clearly, you know, restrictive of women. Um, everything from wives submit to your husbands um, to women should be silent in churches to um, women should not have authority. A woman should not have authority to teach in church. Um, so those are a couple different passages uh, from the New Testament that that can be taken to mean exactly what they sound like unless you dig into it a little bit more. So I don't know if that was a good steel man, but those are some of the places that complementarian <laughs> arguments come from. Yeah, no, I think I think you've uh, you've covered that view in steel um, and welded <laughs> it on good and tight. Um, so let's let's just talk about the fact that presumably your opinion is that it is possible to come to these different conclusions. Generally speaking, particularly within the scholarly world, there are people who are genuinely looking into scripture, genuinely wanting to exposit God's word in the best possible way and just reaching rationally these these different conclusions. Would you say that is that is a fair viewpoint, or would you say that simply it's you know men being men and men wanting the dominance and therefore confirmation bias comes into? Yeah. I think it's complicated because I think that all of us, even with the best intentions and with some serious research that we might do, we all come in with our biases and we all come in with our different kinds of motivations that we're not necessarily aware of. Um, so. I, I do think it's true that people can, in good faith and with good intentions, reach different conclusions about this. Um, and I say that really only because I spent 11 years in a complementarian church among such people. Um, and I do believe in their good intentions. I do believe in their good faith. Um, and I also believe that they're very, very wrong, and that has serious consequences for all sorts of church communities. Um, and I do think that the more that people look into these issues and the more that people are willing to read different perspectives on them and not only a conservative perspective, um, and the more that people are willing to talk about scripture with women and with different people who have different perspectives and experiences about gender, I think usually the more people look into those things, the more egalitarian they come. I don't often see people move in the opposite direction as they study more. 
Um, so I do think there's that aspect to it. Um, so yeah, I think that's, yeah. it's complicated. Yeah. Yeah. As most things are, of course. Yeah. And, um, fair to say that there's no such thing as an uninterpreted text, uh, right. in, in the Bible. So, um, and it's just good to talk about that. It's good to explain these things because, on oh, unbelievable, we do have a lot of people watching who uh, don't have a faith of any kind, wouldn't call themselves religious or, or Christians. And from their perspective, they might well be saying, how is it that you guys disagree on these things? Or how is it that you guys can still think that uh, women aren't equal to men? So it's just good to explain and unpack the fact that it is complicated and that you do have 2,000-year-old text um, being being written and there to be interpreted, not just in its original context, but for what it means for us today in the in the modern world. Right. So let's now uh, make things a bit easier for you and go on to your view. So what was the what was the way in? What was the secret passage into um, your current viewpoint? What was the piece of scripture that made you think, "Wow, this." This is my route into not just egalitarianism, not just into uh, lifting up women, but in terms of being able to propagate that as a as an academic and a theologian. What was what was the key verse that made this all click and come alive for you? Yeah, I don't know if there was one key verse, and I feel like there were kind of two main angles to it for me. One angle is learning more about those texts that complementarians use to say that men and women should have different roles. Um, and I think that with all of those texts, if you look at them more closely, if you look into some of the history and culture involved, if you look into some of the Greek words and how we translate them and the different options for that, um, it becomes a lot less clear what those texts are really trying to say or what they might mean for us today. So I think there's that angle to it, adding more nuance and complexity to how we read some of those texts that seem restrictive. And then there's also the angle to it of looking at scripture and seeing all of the ways that women are leading. And even the Apostle Paul, who says some of those things that sound really sexist or limiting, um, there are also points in his letters where he acknowledges and appreciates women leaders um, and, you know, says things like, say hello to Junia, who's outstanding among the apostles, or uh, greet Phoebe the deacon or kind of different things where he acknowledges that women are leading and he seems to really appreciate them for that. So, um, yeah, I think those are kind of the two main angles, like yeah. kind of seeing that those texts are complicated and also seeing texts that really contradict ways that, that those limiting texts have been interpreted. Well, let's, if it's okay, let's take one of those uh, hot yeah. potatoes and one of those so-called proof texts for complementarianism. And can you, can you, just pick one and, and and give some context to it, whether it's um, one of the things that Paul says. But can you take one of those texts we've been talking about and and explain why we can see it in a different way and how we're able to see it in a different way? Yeah, one of the ones I think is really interesting is in First Corinthians fourteen, um, where Paul says something along the lines of "women should be silent in the churches." And, okay, all of these texts are really interesting and complicated. Um, I think this is an especially complicated one. Um, and, yeah, there's some complications as to how you read the Greek. There's some complications as to what part of the sentence the women should be silent piece goes with. There's some complications as to whether women should be silent in all the churches, if that's what he's trying to say, or just in one particular situation that he's talking about. 
Um, there's also scholars who have raised doubt as to whether that line was even written by Paul, which may sound odd, but there are a lot of points in his letters where he's quoting things that people say to argue against them. And there's some good reasons mm-hmm. to consider that passage as potentially one of those. So there's a lot of unclarity to it, to a line that might seem very clear. Um, and I think it's also important to note that it's just a couple chapters before this that Paul's talking about spiritual gifts and how everybody should be using their gifts, including gifts of speaking, prophecy, teaching, that kind of thing. Um, and uh, just in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, he's uh, talking about women prophesying in particular. Um And yeah, I mean, prophecy was a big deal. Like that's basically preaching or teaching. Women were getting up in front of the church community and speaking. And the only thing that Paul has to say about that in 1 Corinthians 11 is that they should cover their heads while doing so. Um, Mm. So that's kind of a whole other thing that I don't know if we need to get into. But the fact is that women were prophesying and speaking and Paul approved of that. And so whatever he says, saying that women should be silent, probably shouldn't contradict what he said three chapters earlier, that they should speak, they should just cover their heads. So that's, yeah, that's one of the passages involved. That That's great. And so what do we do then when we when we come to these points of on clarity, of, of which there are Down. plenty, what is the sort of the um, irreducible complexity? What's the, what's the fallback? Where do you go to? Where do you where do you land on as the non-negotiable in terms of understanding Scripture? Would it be the words of Jesus? Would it be the way mm. Jesus treats women? How? Where do you go to when we're not certain? As John Wimber says, what does the Bible mainly say? What does it plainly say? The more mainly it says it, the more plainly it says it. So yeah. for you, what is it in this issue, within this subject arena, what is the thing that the Bible mainly and plainly says about about women? Yeah, um, I think looking at Jesus' life is huge. Looking at the way that Jesus treated women, looking at the way that women felt comfortable to interact with Jesus. Um, yeah, I, I think that's huge. Looking at the, the fact that Jesus does not have anything limiting to say to or about women. He only has affirming things to say. He affirms women's faith. Um, he affirms women's courage to come to him. Um, so I think there's that. I think, and if you, I think if you take, if you take that, and if you take all of the ways that we see women leading throughout the Book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament, and kind of weigh those against these couple passages that seem limiting, um, I do think that the balance of it is clearly in one direction. And I also think that, uh, like you said, there's no Bible reading without interpretation. Um, We are all interpreting all of these things, even if it seems like we're just taking a very plain text reading of it. That is a particular way of interpreting. Um, And so I think we need to embrace our own responsibility to really think through what is the impact of the interpretations that we have? What's the impact of the policies that we're making? Um, and what is what is the fruit would be one way to look at it. Um, and that's very scriptural as well to see like our good things coming out of policies that limit women in leadership. Our church is stronger for having women in leadership. Yeah. Our churches, our community is stronger for hearing women preach. Like what is the fruit that comes out of it? I think we really need to think that through. So not just test every spirit, but test every theological viewpoint and thesis. Sure, yeah. Think about its impact on real people, totally. Let's double back on ourselves a little bit and go back. Um, sorry to be cheeky about this, Liz, but 1 Corinthians 14.34. Let's go even deeper. Let's drill down into the context of it and um, 
And just to unpack that more, explain that more from your academic perspective for those people watching and listening. Yeah, I mean, I think something that's really interesting about that um, that we haven't quite got into yet is, um, so what Paul says, I'll just read the verse, uh, is that women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Um, so I think that I mean, so there's still all the issues that I mentioned before, right? Like, what church is he talking to? Is this a particular situation where women were being disruptive? Or is it actually meant to be women should be silent in all of the churches all the time, which is not what he says. Um, And I think one of the things that I like about this passage is this idea of inquiry, um, and that women are encouraged to inquire, to ask questions, um, And I think it's important to note kind of the cultural context at this time that women were often prohibited from accessing education of various sorts. And so there probably were some scenarios where husbands would have had access to information that wives didn't have. And so I think it's very possible that Paul is kind of encouraging women, like, go like learn these things that you haven't had access to before. Like, it's good that you have questions. It's good that you want to know things. Like, let's talk about those questions um, in a context where it's not disruptive to a whole church service. Um, So I think there's Mm -hmm. a lot of possible things that are going on there. Um, And how important then, we're going to come to a break quite soon. Final question in in part one, how important is it, do you think, to have female academics, female scholars? I read one statistic that said in some denominations, there's only 2% of female pastors, which is obviously going to, whether you want it to or not, and good intentions or ill, it's obviously going to sway some of the theological yeah. leanings, isn't it? So how important for you is it to be, if I can call you a forerunner, a pioneer, but to have... Um, women academics, women theologians in these places, given a voice and using their voice? Oh, so important. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it affects the way that people read scripture. Um, I think that, um, you know, I hesitate to say things like women and men have really different perspectives on things because I don't want it to sound like I'm saying that that has to be true biologically. Um, But I do think that men and women are often socialized in really different ways and have really different experiences. And, And so, you know, at our best, biblical interpretation brings all of who we are to a text. And such a huge part of our experience in this world is gender. Um, So I think that often women academics, women preachers see things in these scriptural texts that men don't necessarily see or prioritize different things. And we need all of that. Like it doesn't make any sense at all to um, consider standard or canon uh, these interpretations that have only come from men. Yeah. So would you say then that because of the weighting of academia, that might be one reason why we've got a... um, a sort of percentage in favor of complementarianism. And would you say that as more women feel called, obviously it's a bit of a catch-22 situation to feel called, they've got to feel like they're allowed to do it. But um, would you say that as there's a growth of women called into ministry and into uh, academia, we'll see more of a balancing out of this uh, sort of theological juxtaposition? 
Yeah, I certainly hope so. Um, and I think that, yeah, as you said, women's sense of calling is such a complicated thing and is often influenced by what we've seen or what we've been led to believe is possible or good. Um, and as more and more women enter into theological academia, there are still so many barriers and roadblocks and things that make it unnecessarily difficult. Um, but, you know, as we're able to continue to make inroads, I do think that things naturally change. Um, I don't think I'm not trying to say that all women are egalitarian or that all women would see these issues in the same way that I do. Um, but I, I do think that when women bring our perspectives into scripture and its interpretation, I do think that things change. That's fantastic. Well, we've still got plenty to talk about, uh, Liz. And in the second section, I want to get you to um, talk more about some of the female characters in the Bible and help us to see them with a with a richer with a richer view. But we're going to take a quick break now. You're listening and watching Premiere Unbelievable with me, your host, Andy Kind. And my guest today is Liz Coolidge Jenkins, and we're talking about women in the church and women in the Bible. So we're going to have a quick break. But what do you think? What do you think about what you're hearing? Why don't you let us know? We'd love to hear from you. So email us, unbelievable at premier.org.uk, or you can find us on X, formerly known as Twitter, at Unbelievable FE, also on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Premier Unbelievable. So, still plenty to talk about. Join us in part two Women in the Church, Women in Ministry with my guest today, Liz Coolidge Jenkins. Speak to you in a minute. Before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast, I've got a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter. As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time. And some of Tom's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help keep resources and podcasts like Ask Andy Write Anything and Unbelievable going strong because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can today and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. That's premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. Thank you. Welcome back to part two of Unbelievable with me, your host, Andy Kind. And today's topic is a fascinating one and a timely one. We're talking about women in the church, women in ministry, and looking at some of the women in the Bible and how their characters and experiences could help us redefine perhaps uh, the way women are seen in the church. And joining me today is my guest, Liz Coolidge Jenkins. Liz is a writer, a preacher, and the author of her new book, Nice Churchy Patriarchy, Reclaiming Women's Humanity from Evangelicalism. Liz, welcome back. Are you doing okay so far? Thank you. Good. Thanks. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm very well. I'm enjoying this uh, thoroughly. Awesome. So let's get straight into it then with part two. Um, you said in part one that even Paul, who some people hold up as the anti-female voice, but even Paul really honors and respects the women in his churches, the women who he's 
encountered their gifts of prophecy, for example, yeah. the way that they lead and serve. So why don't you give us a, a couple of female characters within uh, the Bible, the New Testament or Old Testament, and, um, and just help us to see them in a more prominent light, in a warmer light, perhaps. Sure, yeah. And I would also say about Paul that um, not only does he mention individual women who he appreciates for their leadership, um, he also says things like, you know, like, I want there to be no longer slave or free, Jew or Gentile, male and female in Christ. He makes these pretty strong statements about equality mm -hmm. across gender, across race, across class, all these things. So I also think that we have to read the limiting sounding things that he says in light of that. Um, but yeah, oh my gosh, there's a ton of women in the Bible <laughs> who inspire me. Um, and well, let's start with Eve and just go through chronologically. <laughs> Every single one. All right. That'll take yeah. 24 minutes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, I'd love to start with um, Priscilla and Aquila because um, I feel like they don't necessarily get a ton of airtime in a lot of, you know, sermons or talks about the Bible. Um, but I think that they, they've been really important figures to me as I think about these things, um, both because Paul names them as people whose leadership he respects and looks up to, um, and because they're a husband-wife kind of power couple kind of team, and I think that's really cool. Um, and, you know, even in the midst of the, like, kind of, you know, sexist-sounding things that Paul says about marriage, clearly whatever that looks like for Paul included Priscilla and Aquila leading together as equals. Um, and there's a really cool story in the book of Acts where there's this male preacher, um, Apollos, who is kind of going around and preaching, but also doesn't really know what he's doing. <laughs> he's got some some theology that he needs to learn, which is fine. Um, and so Priscilla- I know how he feels. Yeah, yeah, totally. Me too. <laughs> um, so Priscilla and Aquila kind of take him under their wing and teach him uh, more fully the way of Jesus. And after that, he goes back out and is able to preach more and has the full blessing of his community to do that. So he's got these gifts as a preacher, but needed some training. Um, and so Priscilla and Aquila were sort of like his seminary professors, right? Like they train him in the theology that he needs to go out and be an effective pastor. Um, and they do that together, this woman and this man. Um, and I, you know, I think about my seminary experience, you know, from 2016 to 2019. And I had a few awesome female professors. And I wish that I'd had many more of them. It was still very male dominated. Um, whereas, you know, Priscilla's being this like awesome seminary professor type figure back in the first century. So, yeah, she's one of the women that I think of for sure. Yeah, that's great. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because probably we are in the Western world at, at a stage where women are not equipped for leadership because they haven't been equipped is all I mean to say. But is it a similar situation as it is with Apollos, for instance, that if we want women to be equipped in leadership, they need to be equipped for leadership. And in order to do that, they, they need to feel there's that permission and commission to, to take that route. Is that, is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think we all need people who see and affirm our sense of call. Um, I think it's a very rare thing and not necessarily even a good thing when people experience a sense of calling to lead that's only just between them and God and isn't also affirmed and noticed by a community. Um, so yeah, I think it's really powerful when we can kind of point each other and point each other as women kind of 
toward the gifts that we see and the callings that we see and the kind of training and equipping that's useful for that. Um, yeah. That's great. Well, let's let's leave behind scripture, not forever, but just for the time being, and move into church culture and uh, the world of Ecclesia. And I wonder what you think are some of the everyday beliefs and practices within the church that inadvertently or otherwise subordinate women and, and limit women. Obviously, you'll have experience yourself, plenty of it, and we'll know plenty of people who've been in that position. So what are some of the unknowing practices that inadvertently subvert, not subvert, but subordinate and limit the role of women within the church? Yeah, and I like that you asked that question about unknowing practices because there are intentionally limiting practices and there are unintentionally limiting practices. Yeah, sure. And I feel like at the church that I went to for 11 years, I experienced both. Um, so some of the unknowing ones, um, I mean, something that I, I um, touch on in the book that I think is really important is mentoring. Um, so at the church that I was going to, um, people were, uh, you know, younger people on staff like me were assigned mentors. Um, this is a person that you meet with maybe every other week and talk about life and hopes and dreams and sense of calling and career. Um, and they assign gender, uh, same gender pair mentors, um, which I, I know that there can be some good reasons <clears throat> for that, or at least there are some really good intentions behind it. <clears throat> um, given all of the different scandals that happen in churches, right? And mm. um, so I, I see the good intentions behind it, wanting to avoid that or avoiding any appearance of that. But then what happens is that I didn't have access to um, that kind of structured, deliberate, intentional mentoring from men who were pastors or elders or occupied mm. some of the positions of power in the church. And so... Um, I had a wonderful female mentor who's just a great person and a great friend and had a lot of life wisdom that I really appreciated. Um, but as someone who was, you know, in my 20s in ministry full time, considering different options for my future, whether that might include pastoral ministry or something else, I didn't have the same kind of access to people who were serving in those roles um, that I would have if I were a man. Um, so yeah, that's something that stands out to me that nobody like intentionally did that <laughs> to limit my future in the yeah. church. And yeah, that's kind of what happened. Because um, there are a lot of things that are not easy to navigate as a young person working in a church. And I could have used some help navigating them from someone who was in those mm -hmm. positions of authority. And how do we break out of of some of those subcultures? I remember being yeah. in South Africa in 2014 and um, doing some comedy gigs and preaches for churches and being absolutely taken aback and horrified um, that all the all this all the servants all the housemaids were um, were black Africans and I remember asking the people how is it that this is how is it that this is the case um, and everyone I spoke to said well we don't want this to be the case unfortunately the structures are so in place. We actually can't change the structures at the moment. So all we can do, we have a choice, is to is to bless these people with work or or to not do that. So that might not be quite the same thing at all. But my question is, how do we then start to dismantle some of these structures to offer freedom? Uh, I know it's a big it's a big question, and maybe you need to write an entire new book. But <laughs> uh, feel free to talk about what you've written in your book. How do we start to dismantle 
gently and lovingly some of these structures which which are currently preventing women from being fast-tracked towards ministry, towards um, preaching? Yeah, that's a good question. And, you know, the good thing about churches is that most of them operate on a smaller scale than a, an entire nation and so are easier to change. Um, but yeah, that's not to say that change in church is easy. Um, I think there's often a lot of resistance to it and a lot of different reasons why people are very comfortable with the status quo. Um, so I think the structural change often involves just, you know, on the part of the current leadership, some very intentional listening to people who have been marginalized in that church, whether that's women and people of color, queer people, or whoever it may be. Um, and some some really intentional, um, you know, asking some good questions, like, you know, toward women, like, what are your experiences in this church? What have you found affirming? What have you found frustrating? Um, are there gifts that you feel like you've wanted to offer but haven't been sure how or if there's a place for it, that kind of thing? Um, and I think that there's a lot of um, a lot of work to be done in terms of internal unconscious biases that we all have and need to work through. Um, I mean, I, I think about the time that the church that I was working for hired a much younger colleague to work with me and then almost immediately offered him an opportunity to preach at a Thanksgiving church service. Um and I, you know, gently uh, confronted or opened a conversation with my supervisor about that, who said that, you know, this person expressed interest in preaching, and I haven't heard that from you. Um, mm -hmm. So there's a ton of, you know, kind of unconscious bias in there, not necessarily the intention of keeping women from preaching, but, you know, people's ideas about what ambition looks like and what is appropriate to express in terms of hopes and dreams and ambitions. That's all very gendered. Um, and it didn't necessarily occur to me as a young woman in a college ministry position to ask to preach to the whole church. And it didn't necessarily occur to my supervisor to ask me. Uh, so, yeah, I think there's just a lot of a lot of biases, a lot of kind of assumptions that we might have about what a preacher looks like or what a leader looks like or how a person leads. And I think that's all worth reexamining. Yeah, particularly in the light of some of the scandals that we've experienced in yeah. the Western Church over the last few years. And uh, some people might say, oh, well, women don't make great leaders. Well, from my experience, sir, men don't make great leaders either. So um, if everyone's terrible, yeah, we've still got to pick someone, haven't we? But do you, think there's, <laughs> do you think there's a mentality within the church where we don't like to stir the pot? Yeah. Um, we're, we're keen to grow the church. We're keen on discipleship. And actually the, the practice of dismantling some of these structures and uh, renovating them might take our eye off evangelism. Maybe that there's something like that going on. But do you think there's also a, a Christian niceness and nicety that doesn't want to speak truth to power, something that we're called to do, obviously, in Scripture? But yeah. is, is there something like that going on where we just don't want to upset the boat too much? I do think so. Yeah. And I mean, I think even just with the title of the book, Nice Churchy Patriarchy, I really wanted to dig into that and kind of poke at it and ask some questions about, is this niceness really serving us? Um, and I, don't, I feel like it's a little bit ironic sometimes because I feel like I'm generally a pretty nice person or at least try to be kind. Um, but yeah, I think that it's that that the bias toward kind of politeness or like kind of an outward appearance of uniformity really works against what the church is actually called to be and to do. 
Um, and it might seem like delving into some of these controversial things distracts from what people might consider more important purposes of the church. Um, but I think it is the heart and the purpose of the church to be a community where everybody is included, seen, welcomed, everybody belongs and is loved. Everyone has the chance to use their gifts and figure out who they are and what kind of their sense of purpose and calling is in the world. Um, so, yeah, I think those things are very much at the core and the heart of what churches are meant to be. And yeah. So we've got this um, this sort of tension, haven't we, between the desire for unity yeah. and uh, conformity. And on the other hand, the desire to speak truth to power, the idea to be prophetic and to um, have scales fall from eyes and things like that. Can you give us some examples from not necessarily scripture, but from church history, church tradition, some of the uh, amazing God-empowered females from church history who have who have rocked the boat, who have pioneered. Because obviously, we all stand on the shoulders of those who've come before us. So whose shoulders are you standing on in, in being all able to be in this position, write this book, be on this podcast, use your voice in this way? Can you give us some examples from history? Yeah, I mean, I think my mind was blown in seminary to realize that like, like women leading and using their gifts fully in church has been this ongoing struggle and push and pull through all 2000 years of church history. Um, I think that I was taught to believe and I, I did believe or assume that this was kind of a recent thing that we've started talking about in the last few decades, at least. Um, but it's really throughout all 2000 years, like there's this long history of women um, who have led uh, when they've been allowed to do so um, or have have fought for equality when they've not been allowed to do so. Um, and yeah, I just thought that was really fascinating that that's been the case across the whole spectrum. So you see like in the, um, I think it was the second century um you see a letter from a Roman governor that kind of references these two enslaved women as leaders in the church. Um, and, you know, this governor is not kind toward these women. Um, but the fact that he mentions them as people who are leading, like they're the people that you want to like get to if you're going to mess up the church, right? Like, um, so even though they were women and they were enslaved and they did not have a lot of power, respect within the broader Roman world or culture, uh, within the church, they were respected as leaders and looked up to. Um, so I thought that was just really um, interesting that that's kind of how we started out in the very early days of the church. And then there was kind of a, a hardening or calcification of some of the more patriarchal structures since then. Um, but you see, you see, women throughout history. You see Hildegard in the Middle Ages um, was just this amazing, Hildegard of Bingen, this amazing uh, woman who did everything from uh, preaching to music to science to everything. Um, and she became kind of a trusted advisor of the Pope, um, which is yeah. very cool um, to, to know that this Pope in the Middle Ages could see this woman's gifts and recognize them and want to hear her input on things. Um, so those are a couple that come to mind. I mean, there's tons of more recent women. Um, I, I was mind blown to read Margaret Fell's essay called Women Speaking Justified, which was written in 1666 by this Quaker woman. Wow. Yeah, literally making a lot of the arguments that people still are making today from the Bible about women ministering and leading and uh, about female apostles and female witnesses of the resurrection and preachers of the resurrection. 1666, this is not a new thing. Um, well. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. She's lucky she wasn't caught up in the Salem witch trials, is, a, is all I can say with an, with an attitude like That's that. That's fair. So, yeah. Um, that may not be exactly the time it happened. I haven't done the research on the witch trials. That's not what this episode is, is about, Liz. But to quote Galadriel then at the start of uh, The Fellowship of the Ring, is it the case that some things that shouldn't have been lost have been lost because of the increasing um, patriarchal um, stance that the Western church has developed? Some of this has been swept under the carpet. Some of it has been uh, hidden. And actually, it's not that it's it's wrong or unscriptural, unbiblical to have women in leadership. It's just that we are now in a trend. We have become our choices. And what we need to do is start to, again, unravel some of those choices, lift that carpet up and give everything a bit of a spring clean. Is that is that, is that the case? Is that what we need to do? Absolutely. Yeah, there's been a ton that has been lost. There's a ton that has been intentionally buried. Um, and then this kind of almost, you know, gaslighting thing happens, right? Of like, oh, women didn't do that much in church history. Well, that's because their stories have been buried. Mm. Um, and I mean, to some extent, that still happens, even if it's not necessarily people's intention to do so. Um, I think about how I uh, took an elective class in seminary on women in church history and theology, and that was very eye-opening, and yet it was an elective. Like, these women were not given much airtime in your kind of required theology and history classes. So that's the way that their stories are still being buried. Like they're only being found by seminary students who intentionally seek them out. Um, yeah. So we, we're missing a lot. There's a lot to dig. There's a lot to uncover. Um, there's a lot of good work being done to do that. Yeah. And and who are the, who are the current voices then alongside yourself? Who are some of the other uh, voices who are really pioneering um this new perspective on women to uh, completely mash up a phrase. Um, who else do you honor and respect and, and see really carrying the baton for this? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that Kristen Cobas DeMay um, with Jesus and John Wayne and Beth Allison Barr with the making of biblical womanhood have been a couple of recent, um, they're both historians and have written books recently that dig into these things that I really respect. Um, I also think I've been really interested to read things that don't necessarily come from a Christian perspective, but that delve into some of the same issues of sexism and racism and how all these things intersect. So I really appreciate Ijoma Uluo um, and her book, Mediocre, especially. Um, and she has a new one coming out soon as well. Um, she really gets into like some of those questions of leadership and leadership styles and what do we lose when we only have white male leaders and not just that, but leaders who are encouraged to lead in particular patriarchal styles. Um, what do we miss out on when we kind of elevate some of those leadership qualities that aren't actually serving us? So Ijoma Oluo is another one. Um, I also really appreciate Christina Cleveland. Um, her book, God is a Black Woman, gets into all the theology of uh, what we believe about who God is or the assumptions that we might have about God in our mind and how that can be damaging to women, to people of color, um, and what it might look like to imagine God differently. So those are a few. Fantastic. Thanks so much. Well, we're going to take another quick break, Liz. We've been talking about women in scripture, women in the church, women in church history, women in ministry. We've 
uncovered a number of problems. We started to tackle the solutions, but there's more to come. In the final section, I want us to talk about the future. I have two young daughters, and so I'm interested to hear what you've got to say about the future, mm. not just of women in the church, but for women in the church. But it's been a, a wonderful chat so far. Thanks for joining us. And you are, of course, watching and listening to Unbelievable with me, your host, Andy Kine. My guest today is Liz Coolidge Jenkins, writer, preacher and author, talking more after the break about the future of women in the church. Of course, we want to know what you're thinking about it. So let us know. You can email us and sign up to our newsletter, unbelievable at premier.org.uk. And of course, if you're watching or listening on YouTube, you can leave a comment, but please be nice. That's all that we ask. So uh, we're going to have another quick break. We'll see you very shortly for part three of this unbelievable conversation about women in the church. Stay tuned. Well, welcome back to Unbelievable Part 3 of my conversation today with Liz Coolidge Jenkins. I'm your host, Andy Kind, and we're having a fascinating and in-depth, enlightening and enlivening conversation about women in Scripture, women in the church, and women in ministry. Liz, it's great to have you. Thanks for staying for the final part. That's really, really cordial of you. Oh, for sure. Thanks so much again for having me. So we've talked about the past. We've talked about the present. We can loop back to those, of course, at any point. But I want to talk a little bit about the future. I have two young daughters, currently 11 and 8. Those are their ages, not their names. And um, I am obsessed with them and obsessed with the idea of them loving Jesus, knowing Jesus, yes, serving him. But what I always say to them is, I, I want you to become the person God created you to be, God. which is not the same thing as saying, I want you to become the person that church orthodoxy says that you should be. Right. Um, so thank goodness I'm talking to you because I'm relying on you to, uh, in this conversation, change my daughter's trajectory and dynamic. And I know the pressure's well, pressure, on, but I think your shoulders are broad enough, uh, Liz. But um, it's it's something that a lot of people feel, isn't it? And mm. so where do we start? Where do we start with with that? Because there are a lot of people groups, uh, not just not just women, who feel underrepresented, underheard, undervalued. Where do we start with that? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of different angles to that. And I think of a young family in the church that I'm currently going to who chose the church because they want their young daughters to grow up in a place where women are affirmed and empowered. And um, we have a female head pastor, and that's that's huge. That's huge for young women to see um, and to have that kind of leadership in their lives and that kind of relationship with that pastor in their lives. Um, and just for parents to know that they can take their kids to a, a church that's not going to indoctrinate them with oppressive views, um, mm -hmm. uh, views that would would limit their prospects or opportunities in life or their ability to become fully who God made them to be. Um, so I think, yeah, I think it's worth just recognizing that there are a lot of different kinds of churches, that churches are in a lot of different places on these questions. And 
Um, I think it's good, you know, not to do what I did as a freshman in college, which is just, you know, pick a church without asking too many questions about it. <laughs> I think it's good to ask questions, to even just look at church websites and their leadership, staff and elders, and and who those people are, um, and what kinds of gender and race and age is represented there. Um, so yeah, I think it's I think it's crucial to um, just kind of sort out some of those differences. Um, and then there's also the question of, you know, for churches that recognize some of these issues and want to do better, like, where do they go with that? And um, I think as we kind of touched on already, female representation and leadership is huge. Um, and I think there's also a lot of different ways that church services, that worship services can be structured and um, can be more attentive to issues of gender, whether that's in kind of the songs that we sing and what messages they send or in some of the prayers and liturgies and how those are written um, or in, you know, who's preaching. Like even if a church does have a male head pastor, like pastors often have a lot of uh, freedom to choose who preaches and they can invite mm -hmm. guest preachers who are women and they can do that as often as possible, uh, which may be self-serving to say as a woman who guest preaches, but... <laughs> Yeah, you know, I think that it's it's really powerful for like who people see on the pulpit um, and what kind of perspectives on scripture they that they hear. So those are some of the things that I think of. Yeah, yeah that's fantastic because I suppose in secular thought in the secular world, it's no longer the case that women, young women, are told that they need to enter a, a, a typing pool or become uh, a, a nurse. Not that those aren't good things to do, but my mum, for instance, w was told by her mum, oh, you need to just get yourself a, a typing qualification so you can become a secretary. My mum went mm. on, she's retired now, but went on to be a, um, an expert teacher in special educational needs. So I'm, I'm glad that she broke out of that. It's interesting that in society, and maybe this is where we have this unhealthy tension, in society it seems like women are told, you can be whoever you want to be. And maybe there's some Disneyfication there. Maybe there's some sort of, um, unnecessary self-entitlement there because actually you can't be whatever you want to be or whoever you want to be. But you contra uh, contrast that and compare that with the view in some churches, which is, no, you need to remain silent, cover your head, serve your husband. So we've got this horrible sort of grating tension, haven't we? And so what, what do we... What do we do with it? How do we, how do we encourage and affirm young women in particular that they can be who God has created them to be without letting the pendulum swing and saying, "You're better than a man. Your women are better than men," as we'd say in the, as you say at primary school, girls are fantastic and boys are elastic. That was the worst <laughs> uh, insult you could have from a girl in the playground. Um, but how do we? Because we don't want the the pendulum to swing too far where everything gets completely subverted and all of a sudden um, women are masters, men are slaves. We're not talking uh, about that. We are talking about equality. So where's that golden, where's that golden mean? Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't personally see us really being in danger of swinging too far the other way. <laughs> no, I don't either. But I do think that the goal is to figure out how to share power equally among all people, as opposed to having any group have dominance over the others. And um, I feel like Bell Hooks is a thinker who's really shaped my thinking on that. And I've appreciated her a lot. Um, 
I mean, some of the things that come to mind when I, I think about this discrepancy between kind of the secular world and the church world, I mean, one of the things that happens then is you have women who are highly educated, perhaps highly trained in leadership and experienced in leadership, and then they walk into a church and are expected to leave all that at the door and pretend that they don't have those gifts to offer in the church context. So that is just a huge loss to any church that makes women feel that way. Um I mean, another thought is that, um, I mean, I would like to believe that the world as a whole has moved beyond patriarchy. I don't think that's the case. Um, and I've, I've had friends, you know, read some of the chapters in the book that reflect on the different ways patriarchy shows up in church and showed up for me as somebody working in a church. And I've had re- friends read that and say, oh, yeah, I've experienced that in this other field that I work in, whether that's engineering or something else, like a lot of those kind of subtle-ish ways that patriarchy shows up, even if nobody would you know, intentionally say this is how things should be. Um, it's still often how things kind of are. Um, so I, I think those are all things to wrestle with. Um, but I mean, at the bare minimum, if the church is behind the secular culture in this way, that's a problem. Um, I think, you know, yeah. in the New Testament and throughout scripture, the church is meant to be a place of, of equality, of people flourishing, of people um, happily using their gifts to serve one another, um, a place where people feel like they can become everything God created them to be. Um, and yeah, so I think that if the church is different from the surrounding culture, not in that direction, that's, that's yeah, that's a problem. Yeah. And obviously we would say, wouldn't we, that we want to be in the world but not of it we want to come out and be separate but that that doesn't mean being regressive that doesn't mean holding people back from their gifts um and experiences and i found when i started doing comedy my view would be and i wonder whether you agree with this is that you know we become what we behold but often we can only become what we behold so we can only really raise to the level of the generation that goes before us mm. they they leave behind the legacy for us to pick up and, and run with so when i started in, in comedy even though i was a, a a new christian but a christian man i was um occasionally using bad language on stage and and some crude stuff not because i wanted to do it or that it was naturally me but because that was the agenda that was the experience that i had that's what had been passed down and it wasn't until i saw um better well more well-known comedians who are who are christians that i was able to change it i was able to follow a different path mm-hmm. the road less traveled um if you like so what resources then for for young women um we've talked about some already but what other resources what other um places to go are there for women young women who want to go into preaching young women who want to go into ministry where where are those examples for them to follow? Can you can you give some examples of that? Yeah, um, I mean, I think there's you know there's different angles to that too. I think we can look in scripture. I think we can look around uh, different women preachers and writers and that kind of thing. Um, yeah, I mean, examples. I feel like. I feel like it's just, I keep coming back to this, it's so important for us to see the women in scripture um, and for young women to see the women in scripture. Mm -hmm. 
um, and to see them as people with agency, to see them as as a subject, right? Like kind of the center of their own story, um, as opposed to just kind of an object or kind of a, something on the periphery of the story that centers the man. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that, that looking in scripture for those stories, like of the the woman who comes and anoints Jesus' um, feet and and weeps and wipes his feet with her hair and does that in the middle of this dinner party, interrupting these men's conversation about, I don't know, theology or whatever. Um, and Jesus is here for it. He doesn't see her as a distraction. Um, he commends her faith. And yeah, like, like, do we see this woman and her courage to approach him like that and her sense of what's actually important um, as opposed to whatever they might have been debating, her sense of of honoring Jesus and um, I just think that's a really powerful story. Um, and there's there's women who, um, throughout scripture, who engage with Jesus in these ways that are just full of courage and faith and agency. And that's what I would want for any of our daughters or young women in our midst. Um, and I also think that there's, there's a ton of women writers, preachers, thinkers, um, who I found really inspiring. And I hope that other young women would be inspired by too. And um, I mentioned a few already kind of on a more academic side of things. Um, I mean, I also think that Rachel Held Evans and her work is really inspiring um, and just really accessible and really thoughtful as to like what can faith look like um, when some of these restricted versions of it aren't working for us. Um, what does it look like to kind of sort through like what things that we actually believe in and treasure and hold on to and what structures have been passed down to us that we want to change. Um, and Sarah Bessie is another person who's been really thoughtful about that. So That's great. Well, we have a, a, a growing crowd of witnesses of which uh, you are uh, an increasingly important and integral voice, Liz. And um, as you were, as you were saying, you know, it's when you were talking earlier in part one, I think, where you said it's very rare for people to go from egalitarianism to complementarianism once they delve deeper. And yep. I think once they see people in this position. So my my hope for people watching is that they'll listen to and watch Liz Coolidge Jenkins and think, my goodness, here is here is a woman who is. Um, not just whoever she wants to be, but the, the woman who God has created her to be. That's certainly been my experience. And uh, so thank you again for uh, being a standard bearer, for raising the flag and uh, running with the baton. It's been absolutely amazing to have you join us from uh, across the pond. And uh, we hope that you've enjoyed being on Unbelievable. Hope to have you on again soon, Liz. Thank you. I mean, that's, that's you know, a lot of pressure. <laughs> I appreciate that a lot. And thank you so much for having oh, me. We always we always pressurize our guests. That's, <laughs> that's why people tune in. It's, it's, the, it's the potential trauma of the whole situation. Solid. But thank you, Liz. So today, on Unbelievable, we've been talking with me, Andy Kind, about women in the church, women in ministry, and women in scripture with my guest, Liz Coolidge-Jenkins. And she has written a book, and the details will be on all the blurb that you can see. So what have you thought about today's conversation? Why don't you let us know? Email us uh, unbelievable at premier.org.uk. Leave a YouTube comment. Find us on Twitter and Facebook. And tune in for the next in our occasional series of Women in the Church, Gender Roles, and all that jazz. Again, it's been brilliant to have you watching and listening. And thanks so much to my guest, Liz Coolidge-Jenkins. We'll see you again soon on Unbelievable. 
Thank you for joining us on Unbelievable, the show that aims to get you thinking. We would love to hear your thoughts. Do get in touch. You can email us at unbelievable at premier.org.uk or leave a comment on our Twitter account at unbelievablefe or on the Premier Unbelievable Facebook page. And do check out our website, premierunbelievable.com. Registering there gives you access to all of our web content and our newsletter, through which you can gain access to hours of exclusive bonus content. That's premierunbelievable.com. And if you register or sign up for our newsletter there, you will automatically be entered into our competition to win a free book. If you enjoy listening to Unbelievable, please do consider rating and reviewing it on your podcast platform. Thank you for listening and see you next week.